Hello, hello, hello and welcome. My name is Avi Charney, the founder of Charney Legal and the Speak to a Lawyer podcast, where we interview leading lawyers about their lives and lifestyles and the interesting cases they've been involved in throughout their legal careers. You know, I was thinking what to name this episode and I generally stay away from superlatives, but when thinking of the most famous Jewish lawyer, no one else comes to mind than Professor Alan Dershowitz. He owns the front page of Google if you type in world's most famous Jewish lawyer. There's so much to learn from his rich wealth of experience. He's written nearly 50 books. He's on track to get to 50. And he's the youngest 82 and a half year old I know. He's extremely active and productive even at his advanced young age. Super impressed by Professor Dershowitz and I have been for many, many years. You know, lately there's been some unfortunate allegations made against him in the media and in, on Netflix in particular. I'm sure people are familiar. But for me at least, I just wanted to share that does not detract from the lessons we can learn, the inspiration we can get from Professor Dershowitz, and no doubt his impressive career. The allegations do not ruin anything for me, and no doubt they're addressed in this episode. Please enjoy listening, and I look forward to seeing you on the next one. If you haven't already, please subscribe down below so you don't miss other good content. Professor Alan Dershowitz, thank you very much for joining me today. Your reputation precedes you. I've known you. I've been a big follower and a fan for many, many years. Uh, you're most, most famously known as a professor uh, emeritus at Harvard Law School. We can discuss that. You are one of the most um, public defenders of Israel, um, which I've also been following for many years. You've represented some of the most famous and controversial people in our most recent history, including uh, US presidents, I think uh, the last four of them. Um, you're a prolific author and speaker. I'll just point out that I've read at least 10 of your books. I have a few over here as well. Uh, and I'll start by asking, I have a favorite book of yours. What is your favorite book that you've written? Well, that's like asking me, what's my favorite child? I have three children and two grandchildren. They're all my favorites. I would say that among my favorite books uh, is uh, The Genesis of Justice, which is my kind of midrash on the book of Rashid, the first book of the Bible. I loved writing that book. I did the research while I was in Israel living in Jerusalem. Um, I love uh, my book, Just Revenge, which is a Holocaust novel uh, based on how one achieves justice in an unjust uh, world. Uh, of course, I love my book, The Case for Israel, because it had a big influence, I think, on college campuses and helped change the nature of the debate. And my book, Chutzpah, uh, which was the number one New York Times bestseller, which shocked me that a book with a Jewish title about growing up Jewish would be the number one New York Times bestseller all over the United States. So I think those are among my, my best books. I've written 47 of them, and I'm on my 48th working on that now. And um, you know I, I'm trying to reach 50. I'm now 82 and a half years old, so it's, it's a race with time, but I'm hoping to get to 50 books. Well, incredible how young and active you are at 82 and a half years old. You should continue at my restroom 100 to 120, uh, continue being active and, and doing good things. Um, you, you speak about writing 47 books, going on 50, really unbelievable. I'd like you to talk us through your process 
and in particular your daily routine. Do you, do you find time to write every day? How many words do you land up producing every day? And what is the whole uh, book publication process beginning to end in, in your life? Well, everything's changed in recent years in terms of book publishing. I try to write 3,000 words a day if I can. Um, I learned that from my mentor and professor, Alex Bickle at Yale Law School. Uh, he always taught in the afternoon at three o'clock or four o'clock, and he wouldn't leave uh, unless he had written 3,000 words that morning. And uh, I don't operate on that kind of a schedule, but I tried to write as much as I can. Um, I usually write an op-ed every day or every other day, and I try to write some chapters in my book. When I first started writing my books, um, in the 1970s and, and 80s, I had written a lot of law review articles before that and textbooks. But when I started writing my, my more popular books, The Best Defense, um, it would take a year between the time you sat down to write your book and the time it was published, maybe more. Um, today, publishing has moved very quickly. Um, I did break a Guinness record recently. Uh, when um, uh, Justice Barrett was nominated to the Supreme Court to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I decided to write a book called Confirming Justice or Injustice, a guide to the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I started that book on a given day and nine days later, nine days later, the book was published. Um, it was published through one of these publishing houses, uh, which can publish books instantaneously. And so I'm told that that breaks the Guinness world record for from the time the book was commissioned to the time you could get it on Kindle of nine days. I still can't break Hashem's record of six days creating the world. Um, but, uh, you know, he rested on the seventh day. I went nine straight days without resting and managed to get the book um, done. Uh, so I write quickly, but today the process has changed. Uh, I have a book now I'm working on called The Case Against the New Censorship, uh, Big Tech uh, Progressives and Universities. I got the book to the publisher a week ago, and I suspect it will be out within a week. Uh, so the process of publication moves very, which changes the nature of writing, which means I can write about issues that are very, very current, and that might not be current soon. For example, the confirmation book, I wrote it before the confirmation process began. I knew it only had a month life uh, shelf span because she'd be confirmed, but I wanted to get my views out in book form in that short period of time. Uh, the books I'm writing now hopefully have a more evergreen uh, ability about free speech and about cancel culture and about the new censorship, but. I'm very anxious to get my books out quickly. You know, who is it, George Burns, who when he turned 90, they asked him, uh, how has it changed your behavior? He says, I'm so old now, I never buy green bananas because I'm not sure that they'll ripen in time. Well, I still buy green bananas, but because of my age, I want to write books that I can get out in a relatively short period of time. I don't want to wait a year or two between the time I finish a book and the time it appears on the shelves or on Kindle. Right. And, and no question about it, they are contemporary. The books of your, the last uh, five or 10 years do seem to relate very much to current events. And uh, I mean, that could say something about their shelf life, but nonetheless, they're relevant books. 
even about those books, do you still, do you write in the morning? Do you wake up, have a coffee and just start writing on a yellow pad? Tell me a bit about the personal process behind it. Well, I don't own a computer. I'm talking to you now on my smartphone, on my iPhone. Um, I'm not computer savvy, so I do nothing on a computer. Um, I write by hand on yellow pages. Um, anything I write that's serious, I write out by hand. If I want to do a quick letter or a quick op-ed, I can dictate that to my assistant, my secretary, and she gets it back to me and then I revise it and then I get it back to her. Um, uh, even when I do the handwritten, I only do usually two drafts. Um, I regard everything I publish as a first draft. Um, you know, if I want to revise my ideas, I'll do it in the next book. But I'm not going to mutcher. I'm not going to mutcher, to use a Latin term, uh, over uh, everything I've written and obsess until I have it perfect. The perfect is the enemy of the good. And I'm very content to publish a series of good books that are imperfect. Mm -hmm. That's right. Perfection is a killer to productivity in a way. You've got to get it out there. You know, thinking about uh, this discussion that we were going to have, I, I know and I've seen you've been interviewed by so many people throughout the years. You're probably one of the most interviewed uh, lawyers uh, ever, if, if that uh, could say such a thing. I'm wondering, does any interview or interviewer stand out when you left feeling, wow, that was a really engaging interview and the questions the interviewer asked were really good? Anything stand out there over your career, you know, out of the thousands? Well, I can tell you I've had some very, very bad interviews, uh, interviewers who weren't prepared, interviewers who couldn't care less. I mean, one of the best interviewers and somebody who was not prepared uh, was Larry King, the late Larry King. I was on his show multiple, multiple times. And he never prepared. And he said, I want to be like my viewers. I want to know no more about your book or no more about you than my viewers do. I want to ask the kind of questions that a viewer would ask, not having read the book or not having seen you previously, and his questions were so instinctively good. They were really, really excellent. I do remember a conversation I once had, it may have been at the 92nd Street Y, which is, by the way, now banned me and canceled me. Mm -hmm. The 92nd Street Y will not allow me to speak to my audiences that want to hear me speak. They won't allow me to speak on Israel. They won't allow me to speak on free speech because I've been falsely accused of having sex with a woman I never met. And the 92nd Street Y knows I'm innocent. They've told me that I didn't meet the woman. I've proved it through her emails, through her lawyers, but they say we don't want trouble. So they have canceled me and banned me. But my recollection is of an interview I once had with Elie Wiesel, in which he, in his very quiet way, asked me some of the most probing questions about morality. So I've had some great interviews over the years. I'm sure yours will be included among them. Well, thank you. I've heard some of yours. I heard you speak in uh, Tel Aviv a couple of years ago and a few other times, and each time it's uh, entertaining and engaging. So uh, keep it up. Um, you know, in reading your books and knowing your history, uh, especially these books, you've got Genesis of Justice, you've got Abraham over here, um, you've got so much uh, wealth of Jewish knowledge, and you come from a cheder, from a, a religious Orthodox upbringing. Um, my favorite book of yours, if I may say, was Taking the Stand, your autobiography, finding out who is Alan Dershowitz, a bit more about you. And one of the gaps there, uh, despite being a follower of yours over the, all the years, was how you 
and ended up leaving religion. He grew up as a, a frum boy in the Chayda, and there's a few tidbits, anecdotes. Uh, I must say, I laughed out loud when I heard your uh, erection on the stender when you were 13. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, read that, and then you went on about your clerkship and had to, how you had to go home and have a Pesach Seder with your family. Uh, the way reading that, you seem like you're, uh, an Orthodox boy, young boy as a student, and then uh, as far as the reader's point of view, suddenly you're no longer an observant Jew. So I've been curious about uh, that progression. How did you land it's up leaving it? Question. I was never a religious Jew. I was a very observant Jew. I'm very law-abiding and law-oriented. Uh, until I was 28 years old, I never ate a candy bar that didn't have the little U with the circle mm -hmm. around it. Uh, I never deviated from orthodoxy. I wore my tzitzis. I put on my tefillin every day. I don't remember actually having a strong theological belief um, I don't remember thinking when I was in the shul that I was actually talking to Hashem. Um, I'm still very Jewish, and um, I still uh, love the Jewish observances. Um, I celebrate every holiday. I try my best not to work on Shabbat. Uh, I won't publicly work on Shabbat. I would have not defended President Trump in front of the Senate um, on Shabbat. Uh, so. You know, my, my feelings are, are, are very strongly identified with not only Jewishness, but Judaism. I love the Jewish religion, but I am not a believer. And I learned that. Um, I may have told that story. I may not have in taking the stand, but I'll tell it now. Uh, so I took my oldest son to college. And uh, so he was 18. And it was the most important day in my life. Why? Because my older son had a brain tumor when he was 10 years old and the doctors all said he would never live. And I took a leave from everything I was doing. I went to the medical school library. I researched everything involving brain tumors. I traveled all over. I got him the best surgeon in Boston and then the best radiology in California. And thankfully he, he lived and he's fine. He's now in his 50s. Uh, but at the time, this was such an important event in my life, taking my son to college, dropping him off at the University of Colorado. And I got on the airplane to come home, and I had this big smile on my face. I was the happiest man on the face of the earth. My son was in college. I never thought I'd live to see that day. And the plane gets up to about, I don't know, 1,500 feet, maybe 2,000, 3,000 feet. And the pilot says, we have a serious problem. Uh, the flaps have gotten stuck in the takeoff position and they will not unflap. They will not go up and you can't land a plane when the flaps are in the takeoff position. They have to be in the landing position. Um, and uh, I didn't know at the time, but there had been a similar event in, I think, Kansas City and the plane did a crash landing and 20 some people on the plane were killed. So it was a very serious matter. and. Um, they tried everything. And um, then they asked for volunteers to stand at the, to sit next to the doors to help crash them open in, in the event of a crash landing. They made us all take our belts off and the women take off their high heels and the men take off their glasses. Uh, people on the plane were praying um, and, uh, and some were frightened. The stewardesses and the pilot were incredibly competent and good, but it was, 
a life-changing experience to be on a plane, not knowing whether you'd leave the plane alive. And I took out my notepad and I wrote notes to each of my children and I hid the notes in my shaving kit, thinking maybe even if I didn't survive, the notes would survive. I still have the notes. I've never shown them to my, my kids. Um, uh, and, um, but the one thing I didn't do was pray. And I just noticed that. It became clear to me that whatever I might have wanted from my religion, I didn't believe that prayer was going to save my life. So when the moment of truth came, the truth that came to me was that I was not a religious person. That doesn't mean that I give up on my Judaism. I think of Judaism as a civilization, as a religiously based civilization, but uh, I suspect that some of the most important Jews in history have been skeptics. I'm not an atheist. I'm never, ever going to be that certain. But I am, a, I am a questioner. I'm a skeptic about everything. And my favorite Hasidic story is about the old Hasidic Rebbe who had a reputation for never saying anything bad about any person or any institution. I usually actually use this story in front of juries and judges. It's such a profoundly impactful story. And so his students went to the Rebbe and they wanted to challenge him. You never say anything bad about anybody or anything. How could that be? We're going to put a challenge to you. Say something good about being an atheist. The Rebbe looked. It was a hard question. He liked hard questions. And he said to the students, at some point in everybody's life, you ought to act as if there is no God. What? act as if there is no God? Isn't that sacrilege? Isn't that apikoros? No, no. When you see a poor person on the street, you must act as if there's no God. You must act as if you're the only person in the universe that can save that person from starvation. Don't ever say God will help them. You have to help. Them. And I say that to juries. Juries, you believe in God. You think if there's an injustice in this case, don't worry, he'll be rewarded in heaven. Bunchersweig, you know, the man who lived his life on earth, uh, got nothing and was rewarded in heaven. Don't do that. Act as if you are the only person between injustice and my client. Don't count on there being a God. So, you know, my religious views are, are complex. They're skeptical. I'm also skeptical of science. I'm skeptical of irreligious views. I'm skeptical of atheism. I'm skeptical of evolution. I don't think it answers all of our questions. I'm skeptical about everything in my life. It makes life a little bit more complex and difficult because I have no base of certainties. Everything is up for questioning, including religion. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear you say that because uh, my impression of reading at least the Genesis of Justice was that there was an actual Genesis being the Torah, being God. Where does morality come from? And uh, interesting to hear you say that we have to be the arbiters of our own sort of lives and morality, but there, there must be a, a place where it all comes from. You know, people who think uh, you shall not murder because their own mind says so is somewhat lacking because human minds are uh, faulty in a way. It needs to come from a, a higher yeah. source of being. So that, that's when I read your book. What's your take on that? Well, no, that's, that's a fair reading of my book. I'll tell you the one thing I reject about religion. I'm not alone in rejecting it. Jefferson rejected it. Uh, the Rambam rejected it, uh, and I categorically reject it. 
nobody should ever do anything on the assumption that God will benefit you if you do it and God will hurt you if you don't. Certainly don't ever do anything about belief. Uh, I can't imagine God saying, you don't go to heaven because you didn't believe in me. You struggled with the belief, you tried hard, uh, but you didn't come to it. Jefferson writes a letter to his nephew, who was really his adopted son because um, Peter Carr's father had died. Uh, and, and so he wrote a letter to Peter Carr when Peter Carr was, I think, 16 or 17, saying, I think you should believe in God. But if after you struggle with your belief, you come to the conclusion there is no God, God will not punish you for coming to that conclusion as long as you reached it uh, honestly. And the Rambam says the same thing in different words. He says, never do anything based on the promise of heaven or the threat of hell. You do it because it's the right thing to do, or you do it because of your love for God, that's fine. But don't do it on a cost-benefit analysis. Don't accept the uh, betting parlor theory of religion. You know, the famous French philosopher who said, you should always bet on the existence of God, because if he doesn't exist, you've not done anything but waste your time. But if he does exist, and you deny his existence, you will be punished uh, uh, for it. That's, that's turning religion into a betting parlor and assigning odds to belief or disbelief. So that's something I don't accept, but I don't know how the earth began. Look, when I taught my students uh, a course at Harvard called Where Does Your Morality Come From? I actually assigned them the Adon Olam, um, which is one of my favorite Jewish liturgies, and I assigned them two phrases from Adon Olam, the Terem Kol, and the achare kichlotakol. Beterem kol means before everything, before anything, beterem kol, before anything. The achare kichlotakol means after everything is gone, and, and then God will reign. God reigned before anything, God reigns after anything. I asked the students to write an essay imagining what it's like, beterem kol or the achare kichlotakol, and nobody could do it. No human being is capable of understanding how something can come from nothing. Human being, the mind of the human, remember, we're just, we're Newton's dog. We're just a little brighter than Newton's dog uh, on the evolutionary scale. So the idea that we can imagine that there could be something that came from absolutely nothing rather than there being something before, turtles all the way down, as the old joke goes, the human mind just isn't capable of comprehending that. You can have all your Big Bang theories. You still have to ask yourself, what was before the Big Bang? What was Baterum Cole? And I just don't believe we're capable of answering that. Now, therefore, some people say we have to believe in a God as the first cause, that even Baterum Cole, there was something. There was God. There will be God. There is not something from nothing. So that's one response to it. And the other response to it, which is my response, is, I don't know. I can't comprehend it. It's beyond my level of intelligence. I don't think any human being is capable of doing it. I encourage people to continue the quest for knowledge, but don't ever think that you will be able to understand how something came from nothing. You will not be able to understand that. Fair enough. We, we can delve a lot into religion, but I want to move on to other topics. And last question about uh, the religious life before we move on is when you were 28 or 30 and decided to change direction a little bit, what did your mother, your parents say? How did they take it? Or 
Do you even care? Well, of course I cared. I cared deeply. <laughs> uh, first of all, I didn't tell them um, uh, because I, uh, you know, I'm I'm a, a big believer in King Lear uh, by Shakespeare, and I think the villain of King Lear is not King Lear but Cordelia, mm -hmm. the young woman who insisted on confronting her aging, sick, senile, becoming father by telling him the truth. I love you only as much as I have to love you. She should have been charged with elder abuse. Um, I don't believe you abuse your elder parents by necessarily telling them the truth about all of your feelings and all of your attitudes. I think that children have an obligation to protect their parents, just as parents have an obligation to protect, protect, protect their, their, their children. So initially I didn't tell um, my parents. My mother was very smart. She sensed it, she saw it, that it was developing. The reason I changed had nothing to do with my parents, it had to do with my children. Um, I was observant because my parents made me observant, told me to be observant. My parents never had a discussion with me about God. Uh, I didn't grow up in a theological family. You know, the attitude was atheist, atheist, as long as you go to shul. And I went to shul every Shabbos. I went Friday night, I went Shabbos morning, I went to Mincha, I went to Mara, but, you know, I put on my tefillin, I said Shema Amita, I said Modani in the morning. I did all the things you have to say I, before I drank a glass of water. I, I, you know, I said a shackle, shackle in the end of the world. Amen. I don't say it now. You saw that David shown every time he drank water, he put his hand on his right. head. Yeah. I spoke to him about that on my podcast. You know, I have a podcast called The Dirt Show, which I hope people who are listening to this will listen to the podcast. I interviewed David Schoen and I asked him about the hand on the head. Was it just instinctive or did he do it quite uh, deliberately? And he said it was a little bit of a combination of each. But I was extremely observant. I never, ever violated any rules, and I continue to be completely observant. I don't violate the law. I don't violate morality. I don't violate ethical rules. I live by rules, and rules are very important to me. But I did not want my children to necessarily have to live on my religious, uh, not beliefs, but religious observances. So that's when I stopped being strictly orthodox. I still go to an orthodox school. I go to Park East. Uh, I love the rabbi. I love the chazan. Um, I love uh, chazanish music. Um, I love singing um, uh, Jewish uh, melodies. I love conducting the Seder on Martha's Vineyard. I used to conduct Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur services because we didn't like the shul. The shul was very anti-Zionist. It was a reform anti-Zionist, anti-Israel shul. So that's, you know, the Jew on the desert island, one shul I go to, one shul I wouldn't go near. So I wouldn't go near the, the, the Jewish center on Martha's Vineyard. Instead, I conducted services on the porch of my home when it was a beautiful day or inside when it was raining. And we had 40 or 50 people coming to our services. Um, I'm now a pariah on Martha's Vineyard because of my representation of President Trump. So I'm not sure I'll get a minion for next Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, but... Uh, uh, I will still have my home open to those who want to come and daven with me, and we conduct our own service. We do it the way we want to do it. So mm -hmm. I still go to an Orthodox shul. My daughter was bat mitzvah in a conservative shul in in Boston because we loved the rabbi, uh, and my other two children were bar mitzvah in Orthodox shuls. Mm -hmm. Incredible! Uh, you really filled in a lot of gaps for me over there. So so thank you for that. I want to move on to the next part, which uh, we'll use this letters to a young lawyer as a backdrop, because sure. that's what I am. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners are young lawyers. 
So let's get into a bit of that. I mean, so many lessons in here. Uh, I'll start by asking, um, this was written or published in 2001, a long time ago. Have any of these lessons changed, developed, or the principles still hold true? Anything? You say your books are a first draft. If you were to rewrite this now, 20 years later, would there be differences? I would. There would be differences. I didn't realize how few people understood the role of lawyers, how few people understand my job is not to <clears throat> sit in judgment over my clients any more than a doctor's job in an emergency room is to sit in judgment over his patients. My job is to be a zealous advocate uh, within the rules of ethics. My job comes directly out of uh, Bereshit, uh, where uh, Avraham turned to Hashem and said, How dare you, God, the judge of all the world, will not himself do justice. He defended the sinners of Saddam on the theory that what if there are 50, 40, 20, 30, 10 righteous people among the people? And so that's been my job um, throughout history. I, I don't think people understand it as well as I thought they did. I would have devoted much more time in my book to the difficulties you'll face as a criminal lawyer. You'll lose friends, you lose family members, particularly if you defend somebody like Donald Trump, who is such a divisive character, who divides people. You have to pick teams. You're either going to be pro-Trump or anti-Trump. I didn't vote for Trump, but I defended his right to um, uh, be president because other people voted for him. I didn't think he committed impeachable conduct. I, I think I would have spent more time on the downsides of being a principled criminal defense lawyer or a civil liberties lawyer or a constitutional lawyer. Don't expect praise. Expect a lot of enmity. You will be a pariah. You have to develop a very thick skin. You have to know that you're right. I was just reading <clears throat> a great biography of Jabotinsky, who's one of my heroes. Um, he wasn't a perfect person by any means, and he did certain things that I would thoroughly disapprove of. But Jabotinsky, when he was trying to build the Jewish Legion, um, uh, the first Jewish army since the Maccabees, basically, got tremendous amount of opposition from the Zionists, um, the Zionist Association. And uh, he wrote in his autobiography, look, I know I'm right and I know they're wrong. And I'm not going to let that influence my decision. I will not ever bow to public opinion. I'll listen with an open mind but I have enough self-confidence in my position. And he did, he stuck with the Jewish Legion, starting out with the Zion Mule Corps and becoming the Jewish Legion with Trumpledor, et cetera. And he was right. And everybody else was wrong. You know, when you're Jewish, you realize that uh, if we lived in the 16th and 17th century, the whole world believed that Jews killed Christian children and used their blood to bake matzahs. They were all wrong, we were right. So I think being Jewish gives you a sense that you can stand up against the whole world. Um, if I had lived uh, in the early days of Zionism, I would have been a fervent Zionist, uh, and I would have been opposing the assimilationists and the anti-Zionists and the reformed Jews in the United States, even the New York Times in the 1940s that opposed the establishment of a nation state for the Jewish people. So, you know, you can call me arrogant. Uh, I have a lot of confidence in my own ideas, and I always live by my own principles, and I don't allow myself to be swayed by public opinion. Mm -hmm. um, that's most definitely, you're, you're strong to your uh, values and beliefs, and that's what made you, makes you so uh, popular and, and, and well-known. Um, uh, and popular, and unpopular. And, and unpopular, hate. that's right. And, 
Absolutely right. There's a famous saying, I may be butchering it, you can correct it, but, um, and I don't even know who it's attributed to, but it's something like, uh, if you're young and not an optimist, there's something wrong with you, but if you're old and a pessimist, uh, you know, you, you wrote these books uh, many years ago, with elder age, I'm not calling you old by any means, but 82 compared to 40, 50, has uh, a bit of cynicism crept in? I don't think so. It's been attributed to Churchill. It's been attributed to many other people. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're young and you're not a liberal, you have no heart. And if you're old and you're not a conservative, you have no brain. That's the way Churchill put it, I, I think. Um, you know, I'm old. Uh, I have not changed. Um, my positions have always been the same. I'm a centrist, liberal, civil libertarian, uh, defender of human rights, believer in due process, believer in free speech. I don't pick sides politically. Um, I generally vote Democrat, but I wouldn't vote for AOC. And if I were in England, I couldn't vote Labour with Corbyn. Uh, I would vote Conservative uh, if I were in England. But in America, I still vote Democrat, though I'm trying very hard to marginalize the, the AOC wing of the Democratic uh, Party. Am I a pessimist or an optimist? I've become a little bit more pessimistic over the past four or five years. But you know, in Israel, they say a pessimist is somebody who says, oy vey, things are so bad they can't get any worse. An optimist says, yes, they can get worse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm both a, an optimist and a pessimist. Things could get worse. But uh, I do believe that Martin Luther King had something when he said that the arc of justice moves slowly, but generally, it moves in the direction of justice. We have less racism, less bigotry, less anti-Semitism, less sexism, less homophobia than when I was growing up. All of those trends move in the right direction. Right, maybe I'd agree, but now it's, uh, it's can be amplified more through the use of social media and there's a lot of marginalization on, on either side. Uh, we'll get to all that extremism, um, but a couple of things. One is, it's interesting how you have defended controversial figures throughout your career and by doing that you even became a bit of a controversial figure yourself and now you're defending yourself so it comes in a bit of a full circle it's to maybe avoid all that controversialness let's say are there any cases you regret taking on i know it's all for justice but oh, sure just the of impact course. of them yeah no of course i regret ever having met uh, jeffrey epstein I was introduced to Jeffrey Epstein by the Lady Rothschild, Evelyn Rothschild's husband. She told me he was this wonderful man and was contributing to Harvard and uh, was interested in, the, in science and that I would enjoy him, enjoy meeting him. And I initially said no, because I had my family up on Martha's Vineyard, but she insisted and pushed and pressed. And I eventually met him and then I eventually represented him. And then of course, this woman who I had never met, never heard of, um, um, uh, perjured herself and uh, alleged that I had um, had sexual contact with her. I've never had sexual contact with anybody but my wife uh, during the relevant period of time. I'm not a flirt. 50 years at Harvard, not a single complaint. I never touch people. I never make uh, sexist jokes. I never do anything. I'm my 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 personal life uh, has been uh, without uh, flaw or blemish, and so. When I was falsely accused, it was outrageous. Uh, my, my first impression with my wife was we laughed at it. I mean, we all know who I am and what kind of a person I am, and I would never have sexual contact with somebody from Jeffrey Epstein's orbit. 
And eventually I was proved correct. We found emails that she tried to suppress in which she admitted she never met me. She never heard of me. She had to be told who I was by a journalist named Sharon Churcher. Uh, she told the FBI about all the people she had sex with. She was shown pictures. And she said, no, not Dershowitz. I you know, never had sex with him. She wrote a book in which she said she never had sex with me, claimed she had seen me once, but never met me. Um, her own lawyer in a tape recorded conversation, he didn't know I was recording it, said, it was done legally mm -hmm. in New York, said, um, <clears throat> oh, she, she's clearly wrong. Uh, she's plainly wrong. She's mistaken. Um, you couldn't have been in the places that she said she met you. You were never at those places, et cetera. She's wrong, simply wrong. Her best friend um, said in a tape recorded interview that she said uh, she was coerced, she was pressured, she felt pressured. Quote, I felt pressured to name you by my lawyers. She had never mentioned you previously. She had never wanted to falsely accuse you, but my lawyers pressured me into doing it. So there's never been a case of a clearer situation of a falsely accused person. I wrote a book about it called um, um, uh, uh, Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Me Too. That's a book I hope everybody will read. It's being published in Israel now in Hebrew, and it documents the entire case, because what happened to me could happen to your children, your parents, your uncle, your aunt. And yet, because of the Me Too movement, people persist in in believing it. So it's the one case I wish I had never gotten anywhere close to because it's had a major effect on my life for the last um, um, uh, more than five years, six years now. It's cost me a fortune of money defending myself, but I will not stop. Mm -hmm. And if I die, my children and my wife will continue to defend me. And, um, uh, and, and when they die, their children will. We will never give up on this because the truth has to come out. And, you know, the Me Too movement has done a lot of good, but it also has been very unfair. Take, for example, my favorite Jewish uh, liturgical composer, uh, Shlomo Kalbach. Uh, I love his music. I hum his music in the shower. Um, I, I listen to his recordings and he has been canceled. Uh, the Central Synagogue in New York didn't allow his music to be played for a year because of accusations made against him after he's dead. He doesn't even have a chance to defend himself. I don't know whether he did anything wrong or right, but I want to listen to his music and I'm not going to stop listening to his music based on an accusation that may be false, true, or somewhere in between. I'm going to keep fighting against that. That's the only case I regret having taken. There were other cases that were very frustrating for me. I wouldn't, a lot of my cases, but when I lose one, I feel terrible about it. And um, I've had some losses where I just feel awful. Um, and uh, recently I helped get some people pardons and commutations uh, from President Trump. I had also helped pardons from President Clinton and others. But uh, my biggest regret is that I couldn't get pardons for some people. I couldn't get commutations for some people who deserved it. That's my job as a criminal defense lawyer it's to fight against our system of injustice that often imprisons people too long and sometimes for crimes they didn't commit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we grow up um, <clears throat> as children, as adolescents, believing in the system, the system of justice and uh, the whole Epstein story and what happened to you with false accusations and even what happened to him, the fact that either he was killed or committed suicide really shattered people's belief in this uh, system called justice. 
Um, I know a lot of conspiracy theories have come out after that. Who killed him? Did he die? Anything around that? Wondering also in the past four years, you being wrongfully accused of your involvement there and how that whole thing was dealt with. Has your, so to speak, belief in the, the justice system been shattered at all like some other people? Well, it's certainly been shaken. Um, certainly my belief in the 92nd Street Y has been shaken. <clears throat> my belief in uh, Temple Emanuel in New York has been uh, shaken. My belief in other Jewish institutions that canceled me knowing that the evidence of my innocence was not only overwhelming, but conclusive. Uh, my faith in the Jewish community has been shaken in the institutional Jewish community. I'm no longer invited to Jewish book fairs, um, even though I write books about uh, Israel, all based on we don't want trouble, just like the old McCarthyism. We don't want trouble. We don't care whether you're innocent or guilty. You've been accused. Therefore, we don't want trouble. People who I've helped over the years, people whose children I advised on getting into college, people whose parents I represented pro bono, um, have uh, stopped associating with me, partly because of the false accusation, partly because I defended President Trump. Um, and so, yeah, my faith, not only in justice, but in morality, has been shaken, but that only encourages me to get more involved and to try to do uh, repair of the world, tikkun olam, or even tikkun tzedek, tikkun of the justice system. And my bar mitzvah, Parsha, my grandmother would say it was bashert, my bar mitzvah, Sedra, was shoftim, shoftim, v'shotrim, titen l'cha v'chol, sh'yarecha, I can still lane it. Uh, and the most famous words in shoftim are, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. Uh, it doesn't say Tzedek, Tzedek, shall you uh, accept or believe in. It says Tirdof, chase after. Right. Because the writers of that phrase, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, understood you never catch justice. It never gets achieved. It's always a process. It's always running away from you. There are always going to be efforts to undo justice. And justice is a process. The struggle for justice never stays won. And that's the brilliance of Tzedek, Tzedek, Dov. Also, why Tzedek, Tzedek? Why not just Tzedek? Because nobody agrees about what justice is. What is justice for one person is not justice for another person. In my case, I'm seeking justice not only for those women who have been abused and who correctly seek access to justice under the Me Too movement, but justice for those who have been falsely accused, like me. And I want to make sure our justice system is equally attuned to false accusations as to true accusations. So sometimes in the pursuit of justice, you could be swimming downstream. And it kind of seems that the culture is going along with your pursuit of justice. And sometimes, maybe like these days, it seems like you're swimming upstream against the current. That could be perhaps from your representation of Donald Trump uh, and also because of the shift in society. And I'm referring to the cancel culture. Uh, you're not sure. being allowed to speak at Jewish book fairs and uh, universities and uh, 92nd Y over there, all these different places. Why do you think they just have an inability to listen? One thing is to disagree, fine, but just to not able to speak is, I think, another level. But just remember, too, that it's not me who's the victim of not being able to speak. I can speak. Um, on this show, the victims are the people who wanted to hear me speak. 
the thousand people who would have come to hear me speak at the 92nd Street Y or at Temple Emanuel or at the Jewish book fairs, the people who wanted me to speak and they're being canceled. They're not being allowed to hear me speak because a handful of people usually, five, six, 10, would protest. And so the real victims of the cancel culture are the people who have an equal right to hear. Remember, the right of free speech has two components, the right of the speaker and the right of the listener. And the right of the listener is just as important as the right of the speaker. And the listeners, my listeners, my audiences, have been deprived of the right to hear me, which is why I'm happy to be on your show. And once this show is recorded and sent out, I'm going to send it out to a lot of people to listen to what I have to say, because they can't hear me at the 92nd Street Y, so they can hear me on your, on your mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, fantastic. And, and, you know, happily spread, spread the show. And uh, luckily, we have other platforms to share the information on. Um, what about Trump's ban on Twitter and social media platforms like that? That's another infringement on, on free speech. And also, the victims are the general public, uh, sure. based on your analogy. Sure. Uh, the problem with that is, of course, the right to cancel, the right of Twitter to ban are also protected by the First Amendment. They are private entities and the government can't tell them what to put on or take off. But we, the public, have the right to criticize them. And we, the public, have the right to say, look, if you're going to start picking and choosing, at least do it equally. If you're going to take down Trump, take down uh, Elon Omer, who makes anti-Semitic uh, statements. Uh, like today on Amazon, you can't buy Dr. Seuss, but you can buy Mein Kampf. Uh, by Hitler. You have to have a single standard. My single standard would be let everything be sold, let everything be heard, let the public judge for itself, let the marketplace of ideas um, operate. And uh, I feel much more comfortable doing that. Look, freedom of speech, I would say, as Winston Churchill said about democracy, freedom of speech is the worst possible system except for all the others that have been tried over time. What is the alternative? The alternative is censorship of some kind. And censorship will always be either selective or pervasive. And I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. Um, do you have any other general sort of advice you'd give to young students, young law students? And, uh, you know, with this book, again, in the backdrop, a lot of people start off on an idealistic path and then land up going into uh, corporate commercial law and making money. And you do reference it here, but how, do you do, how did you land up having a whole career committed to justice and not necessarily the pursuit of wealth? Well, first of all, when I graduated law school, this is going to sound a little braggy and statistical. I was first in the class at Yale Law School. I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, and I was about to be selected to be a Supreme Court law clerk. That's like being the National Basketball Association number one draft choice. But I got turned down by 32 out of 32 Wall Street firms. They didn't want me, despite my grades, despite my knowledge, despite my intelligence, they didn't want me because my name was Dershowitz. My family came from Poland. They were immigrants, my grandparents. And uh, I was not the kind of lawyer that uh, Sullivan Cromwell wanted. Today, Sullivan Cromwell is headed by a Hasidic Jew. It has a kosher kitchen and a minion. Things have changed uh, quite dramatically. Uh, I don't think I ever would have gone into a law firm and just try to make money. Life's too short for that. I wanted to devote my life to doing justice. Money has been a byproduct of that. Um, You know, I do half of my cases pro bono. I work very closely with Aleph, a Chabad-based organization that helps prisoners. Um, 
all through my life, half of my cases have been pro bono. My first case in my career was the Defense League uh, case, and um, uh, I did that pro bono. I did most of my First Amendment cases uh, pro bono. So WikiLeaks now pro bono. So how do you decide nowadays? I'm sure you get calls all the time to help with pro bono stuff. People are convicted and wrongly convicted. What's your criteria about accepting a case and uh, rejecting a case? It's very hard because if I didn't reject some, I'm doing 24-7 just defending people. And I can't at this stage in my life, certainly. Um, so I try to take the most challenging cases. I try to take cases no one else will take. I try to take all death penalty cases, free speech cases. Those are my main criteria. Um, I'm, I also look at cases from the eye of Rachmanut, Rachmanus. I want to be able to help people who really need it. And so when I get mothers crying on the phone about their children in prison, I, I generally will, will take those cases. Um, I'll never forget the day my father passed away. He had Alzheimer's for many years. I was in Borough Park with my mother and somebody knocked on the door and got down on her hands and knees and begged me to defend her son who was just sentenced to, I think, 25 years in prison. And he had no money. And uh, my father's funeral was the next day and I invited her into the house and I took the case and I won the case. And the man never spent a minute in prison in his life. And I got a lot of uh, thank you for that. And uh, then when uh, Raboshkin had been sentenced to 23 years or something in prison, I took his case pro bono and helped get him a, a commutation. And of course, the New York Times attacked me and some of my friends attacked me. Why am I getting commutations for these bad people who did such terrible things? Well, because I have Rachmanis and I don't want to see somebody suffer in prison for 23 years even if they did something bad that may deserve a year or six months in prison. I think we overpunish, and I'm gonna devote all of my life to um, defending people who are wrongly accused, people who are wrongly convicted, people who have excessive sentences, and if people don't like it, uh, I'm not looking to win any popularity contest. Look, as a result of the false accusation against me, I'll never get another honorary degree, I'll never be invited to speak at a college or university. That's the reality. Even if I win my lawsuit, even if my accuser is indicted and prosecuted and convicted of perjury, which she should be, it will never restore my reputation because once accused, you're deemed to be guilty in the mind of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate, and I do hope that you manage to clear your name formally. Uh, one or two last questions before I let you go, and I thank you again for your generosity over here with your time. You know, you're right. a young, young 82-year-old. They say, right. I want to ask, how do you see your next 10 or 20 years ahead? The Lubavitcher Rebbe says there's no such thing as retirement. And he's told his followers, keep working, keep going. Do you have any plans to slow down or, or how do you see the next uh, 10, 20 years? Um, whether I slow down will not depend on me. I don't want to slow down. It will depend on nature, God, my, my ability I had the pleasure of meeting the, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, on, on several occasions. And he was an influential person in my life. And I certainly agree that I'm never going to retire. Uh, you know, I enjoy taking walks with my wife. I enjoy listening to music. I'm not a workaholic. I'm an activa-aholic. I must be active all the time. 
but I love most of my work and my work is important. And there are efforts to retire me. I get emails all the time saying, you know, you're over the hill, you have, you're senile, you must have Alzheimer's. How can you be defending Trump? How can you be doing this? How can you be doing that? Well, I'll leave it to others to determine whether I have Alzheimer's or whether I'm over the hill, but I will continue to work hard to pursue um, justice. Um, I will die with my work unfinished, uh, as we all do, but I hope to move closer to being able to accomplish my life goals, which is to create a, a, a more just system, uh, a system in which Sedek Sedek Tirdof becomes the motto of the world, in which everybody tries to pursue and, and chase after justice. It'll never be achieved, but we should never stop pursuing it. Mm -hmm. Great lessons. I mean, we should all take that to heart, the younger generation, and pursue justice, make that our career goal. Uh, in addition to that, I'll leave you the last word. Any bit of general recommendations or advice to young lawyers? I mean, it's not fair because you wrote a whole book about it, so you could just refer people to this book, but hearing it from your mouth itself, any last words you want to leave us with? Yeah, create your own career. Don't fit into other people's pigeonholes. Figure out what gives you the most uh, pleasure. Um, you have to have pleasure out of your work. Uh, and you have to make sure you get up every morning saying, oh, I can't wait to see what I encounter today. You can't live for Friday. Um, you know, thank God it's Friday. First of all, for me, it's always thank God it's Shabbos. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you can't live for, for the end of the week. You have to find gratification in your work, and the gratification can't be financial alone. It has to be that you're doing something that helps other people. In my case, I think I'm helping people. Other people think I'm hurting people because I'm working on behalf of people who are despised and hated and who can, in fact, do bad things to the world. But uh, so is Abraham when he stood up on behalf of the sinners of Saddam. And so was Moshe when he said to God, write me out of your book if you don't forgive the people of Israel. So I have a lot of uh, people from whom I can learn. Um, uh, for me, my, my models, my current models are people who dream, Theodor Herzl, uh, uh, Zev Jabotinsky, David Ben-Gurion, Chaim Weitzman, uh, Menachem Begin, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, Ellie Wiesel, Erwin uh, Kotler, uh, Harvey Silverglade. These are people who have been my role models uh, for years and, and who I'm going to continue to uh, stand on their, on their shoulders. Um, giants came before me. I hope I have strong enough shoulders that some people can stand on them and follow in my footsteps and continue to pursue justice after I'm gone. That is absolutely true, and I'll just uh, end, end by saying that your role models, all those uh, five, six, seven people you just mentioned, are also my role models, and you are included among them. So thank you, and continue doing the great work that you do, and uh, hopefully things improve for us all, and we get the opportunity to speak again. That would be great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.